So tonight then as you're aware, we are having some telelinks or the program is to have some telelinks with some of the Mashaykh, Sheikh Yahya Al-Nahari and Sheikh Ali Al-Wasifi. However, Sheikh Yahya Al-Nahari, Hafizahullah Ta'ala, is unwell. And he has excused himself, he's not able to do it due to his health. But uh, Sheikh Ali al-Wasifi is still going to do his telelink. And that's going to begin in just over half an hour at about 10 past or quarter past six approximately, inshallah. So before that, we'll do a short introduction, 20 minutes or so, half an hour at most. And then Sheikh Ali al-Wasifi will begin the telelink for his uh, lecture, which is going to be around the topic of Surah Al-Asr and benefits from Surah Al-Asr. As you're aware, the title overall and the theme is around the ayah where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Protect yourselves and your families from the fire. And so the lectures today or the theme of the talks, they are all around that type of subject, around that type of topic in regards to preserving and protecting yourselves and your families from the fire. So initially then, what we'll do is have a look at this particular ayah and the tafsir that some of the scholars have mentioned on that particular ayah. So firstly, if we have a look at al-Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di rahimahullahu ta'ala and the tafsir of al-Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di rahimahullahu ta'ala is one of the most recommended books of tafsir to begin with. As a beginner book of tafsir, it is one of the most recommended ones that a person should start with. So in that tafsir, Sheikh Abdurrahman Sa'di says, in regards to the ayah, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu, that oh you who believe, protect yourselves and your families from the fire, its fuel is men and stone, and upon it are the severe angels. They do not disobey Allah, and they perform 
what they are commanded with. As Sheikh Abdurrahman Sa'di said, Wiqayatul Al-Anfus Bi-Ilzamiha Amr Allah Imtithalan Wa Nahyahu Ijtinaban Wa Tawbah Amma Yaskhatu Allah Wa Yujibu Al-Adhab Wa Yaskhatu Allah That protecting yourselves it is by clinging on to the command of Allah. When Allah says, nara, Protect yourselves and your families from the fire. Then the first thing that a person does in order to protect himself and his family from the fire is to make sure that you are obeying the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala بِإِلْزَامِهَا أَمْرُ اللَّهِ That you make yourselves stick to and cling on to the commandments of Allah. امْتِثَالًا Meaning that you do that seeking the reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doing it upon the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and that you stay away from the prohibitions. Stay away from the prohibitions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited us from. Once again, upon knowledge and understanding and recognizing what is in the sunnah, what is warned against and prohibited against, And also, the third affair, the first was to fulfill the commandments, the second was to stay away from the prohibitions, and the third, at-tawbah, to repent from your sins and your shortcomings, that is from the means of protecting yourselves and your families, encourage them to repent from their shortcomings, from their wrongdoings, because we all fall into error, we all fall into some shortcomings and some wrongdoings from time to time. So a person seeks forgiveness from Allah and makes tawbah from those shortcomings and those errors. And then the Sheikh mentions Further to that, protecting your families from the fire, wiqayatul ahl wal awlad, your families, your children, one of the ways also, bita'dibihim, wa ta'limihim, wa ijbarihim ala amrillah. Three things the Sheikh mentions in regards to your families. One, at ta'dib that you teach them the manners and the morals and the etiquettes of a Muslim. You teach them the morals and manners and etiquettes of a Muslim and to behave in the correct manner as a Muslim and to live their lives upon the morals of a Muslim. To give them that ta'deeb to show them the good character and the good traits 
that they are supposed to be upon as Muslims and to raise them in that way, your children, and to educate them. A person wants to save his family from the fire, then you must educate your family. The knowledge of the Qur'an, the knowledge of the Sunnah, as for a person who does not educate his family, does not educate his wife, his children, then you are letting them go astray and you are allowing them to go astray away from the Qur'an, away from the Sunnah, away from the practice of the religion in its proper manner. So the second here is educating them. And the third, to compel them to act upon the religion. Because the man, as the man of the household, then you have the right in your household to force the Qur'an and the Sunnah to be implemented and to prevent your family and your children from doing anything that is in opposition to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, to prevent your family from bringing in any haram into the household, for, from speaking in a way that is haram, from engaging in activities in the household that are haram, you prevent that and you force them to stick to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. You have that right in your household. And not just that, but it is an obligation upon you in any case. All of you are shepherds and all of you are responsible for your flock. So in terms of the family, then to show them the correct etiquettes and manners and morals of a Muslim, to educate them about the religion, the Qur'an, the Sunnah, and to enforce the implementation of the religion in your households, to stop any haram coming into your household, not allowing any disobedience and haram occurring in your household, but rather forcing everybody to stick to the rulings of the Qur'an and the Sunnah in your household. And that is all from the means of protecting yourself and your family from the fire. فَلَا يَسْلَمَ الْعَبْدِ إِلَّا إِذَا قَامَ بِمَا أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِهِ فِي نَفْسِهِ so a person cannot be safe unless you yourselves implement the commands of Allah upon yourselves and then after that also implement that within your families, those who are under your guardianship. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has informed us of the severity of the punishment, the hellfire that you are aiming to protect yourselves from, that hellfire whereby its fuel is people and stones, man and stone thrown into that hellfire and they burn within it. So you want to protect yourselves and your families from that severe hellfire, and you do that through sticking to the commandments of Allah, staying away from the prohibitions, making tawbah, repenting from your sins, 
and in terms of the family, all of those affairs, and teaching them the correct manners and morals and etiquettes, educating them about the religion, and enforcing the practice of the religion in your households. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentioned also on the same ayah regarding protecting yourselves and your families from the fire. Ibn Kathir, he says, Protect yourselves and your families from the fire. He quotes that Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu anhu said, Ali radiyallahu anhu fi qawlihi ta'ala, That Teach them to be upon the straight and narrow, as we say. Teach them to be upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Show them and teach them the correct manners and etiquettes and morals. And teach them the Qur'an and the Sunnah. With those affairs, then they will be upright. And that will be the means of protection from the fire. Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, he said, Regarding the same ayah, Protect yourselves and your families from the fire. He said, يقول, Ibn Abbas, Act upon the obedience to Allah. And protect yourselves and stay away from the sinning against Allah. And command your families with the remembrance of Allah. Command your families to be upon the remembrance of Allah, the supplication and the dua. That they are constantly and regularly upon that supplication and dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he said, Yunjikumullahu minan nar. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will protect you from the fire. Do that. Obey and be upon the obedience to Allah. Stay away and protect yourself from sinning against Allah, and command your families to be upon the dhikr and remembrance and dua to Allah constantly, and Allah will protect you from the fire. Mujahid, another one of the salaf, who was known for his knowledge of tafsir, he said, قال اتقوا الله وأوسوا أهليكم بتقوى الله Protect yourselves and your families from the fire meaning have taqwa of Allah and having taqwa it means that you fulfill the obedience to Allah and you stay away from the prohibitions fulfill obedience to Allah and stay away from the prohibitions 
Fear Allah and he said, Allah. And command your families, advise them to be upon the taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also. وَقَالَ قَتَادَةً قَتَادَةً He said, يَأْمُرُهُمْ بِطَاعَةِ اللَّهِ وَيَنْهَاهُمْ عَمْ مَعْصِيَةِ اللَّهِ That a person commands his family to be upon the obedience to Allah and warns them from the sinning against Allah. وَأَنْ يَقُومَ عَلَيْهِمْ بِأَمْرِ اللَّهِ وَيَأْمُرَهُمْ بِهِ وَيُسَاعِدَهُمْ عَلَيْهِ فَإِذَا رَأَيْتَ لِلَّهِ مَعْصِيَةً قَدَعَتْ نعم Firstly he says here يَأْمُرُهُمْ بِطَاعَةِ اللَّهِ That he is to command them to be upon the obedience to Allah and he prevents them and warns them against sinning, uh, sinning against Allah. And that a person, he then implements the command of Allah and orders them to do so. He observes and enforces and implements that command of Allah in his household, in his family, and commands them to do so and helps them to do so. The man himself aids and helps his family upon being upon righteousness because it would not make sense that the man commands his family with righteousness, but then facilitates for them the opposite of that. Facilitates for his family to do wrong and to do haram. He facilitates it for them, but then he tells them to be upon righteousness. Rather here, Qatada said, He is to help and assist his family also upon that righteousness. And this is not one-sided. It may be the case that the wife is the one who is perhaps more practicing than the husband and that she needs to be the one who is encouraging the husband and facilitating the goodness in the household. From both parents, the rights and responsibilities are there. And then he mentioned at the end, that if he sees sinning occurring in his household, that he then stops that and prevents that, and as we say, tells off his family for doing that. Prevents them and tells them off. Stops them from haram occurring within the household. And this is the way that the husbands and the wives that they should be one to another and in regards to their children, raising them upon that correct way, raising them upon obedience to Allah and staying away from haram, facilitating for them the goodness in the household and preventing from them any evil or haram or disobedience to Allah within the household. Also, al-Dahak, famous again for his tafsir, 
المقاتل they said حق على المسلم أن يعلم أهله من قرابته وإمائه وعبيده ما فرض الله عليهم وما نهاهم الله عنه that it is a right upon the Muslim that he needs to teach his family and his relatives and those who are under his authority that he must teach them what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has obligated upon them and what Allah has prohibited from them. It is a right upon him that he educates and teaches his family and his relatives and those under his authority the commandments of Allah and the prohibitions. That is all from the means of protecting yourself and your families from the fire. If you do not educate them and teach them of the commandments of Allah and the prohibitions, then they will be falling into those prohibitions and they may be negligent of those commandments. So it is upon a person to educate his family regarding those affairs. The fuqaha, they said, an example they gave. Fissawm. Regarding the fasting and the prayer, the prayer and the fasting are mentioned as examples of raising the family upon goodness because they are mentioned in the hadith and the narrations. In the hadith, the Prophet said, Murusabi bisalati idha balagha sab'a sinin, fa idha balagha ashra sinin, fadribuhu alayha. Command the child to pray when he reaches seven years old. And when he reaches ten, then hit him upon it. From the means of teaching that child the etiquettes and the manners and the morals of a Muslim. That he needs to be praying. He must be praying. So from the age of seven you start telling them. And from the age of 10, it becomes something severe that they need to be praying now. And they should be praying now. And many children near that age, it becomes an actual obligation in any case. An actual obligation in terms of that child reaching the age of puberty. There or thereabouts, close to that age or further on from it. It will become an obligation upon them. So from the age of 10, you are supposed to be telling them they must be praying now to get into that habit and understand that worship. And the same with fasting. And there is a narration mentioned by the scholars regarding the companions that some of the companions, they would encourage their children to fast. Young children as well. And when it got to the time of Asar, the children would obviously be hungry and they would be crying because they want to eat from their hunger. But it's mentioned that some of the Salaf in that scenario wouldn't just give them food. They would give them toys. And the children would then become preoccupied with those toys. 
and continue to play for an hour or two, and before you know it, Maghrib time has entered, and then they eat. So now the child in that way is getting practice upon the worship of fasting all the way till Maghrib time. And even at that end time when they became hungry, they would give them toys. It is mentioned in the narrations. They would give them toys to preoccupy them and take their mind away from the hunger until when it came to Maghrib, then they would let them eat. And so those children were practicing the fasting properly all the way. And that is, of course, for the children who are capable. If a child is incapable, then you do not compel a child who is incapable to try and fast the length of the fast if he's not able to do so. But this is in the context of children who were able. They felt some hunger and they wanted food, but they were more than capable. And so the Salaf gave them toys to preoccupy them until the time for Maghrib came. And then when it says, That the fuel of the fire is, as Ibn Kathir mentions here, the corpses of mankind. Meaning mankind themselves, the bodies, mankind thrown into the hellfire and the bodies are the fuel burning in that hellfire. يُلْقَى فِيهَا جُثَثْ بَنِي آدَمْ وَالْحِجَارَةِ And the stone, some of the scholars, they say, as Ibn Kathir mentions here, that the meaning of stones being fuel of the hellfire is a specific type of stone. And what is that? So there are some explanations about the, the type of stone and how it intensifies the fire. But one of the explanations of what the stone is, Ibn Kathir mentions, it is the idols that they used to make out of stone. Those stone idols, idols made of stone, they are the ones thrown into the fire, not just general rocks. But the actual idols that were made out of stone, all of those stone, and they used to have thousands of them, how many of the idols they used to have throughout history made of stone, those stone idols. And remember, the stone idols were not necessarily even sculptured. Some of their idols were just pieces of stone. So all of that, Ibn Kathir says, the stones were the ones that were used as idols, whether they were just stones as they were, or whether they were sculptured into idols, all of that stone that was used as idols and worshipped besides Allah, that is cast into the fire. Uh, And there are other narrations here from the Salaf talking about the type of stone, Hijaram and Kibrit, that's given as an example uh, and uh, there are some narrations from Mujahid and others talking about the stench, the stench that arises from there uh, and from that fire. So these are some of the statements of them. وَعِنْدَهُ 
بعض أصحابه وفيهم شيخ فقال الشيخ يا رسول الله In this narration here it mentions وقال ابن مسعود ومجاهد وأبو جعفر الباقر وسدي هي حجارة من كبريت زاد مجاهد أنتن من الجيفة That that rock has a stench to it Those stones have a stench to it worse than a corpse وروى ذلك ابن بحاتم رحمه الله ثم قال حدثنا أبي قال حدثنا عبد الرحمن ابن سنان المنطري قال حدثنا عبد العزيز يعني ابن أبي الروات قال بلغني أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم تلا هذه الآية يا أيها الذين آمنوا قوا أنفسكم وأهليكم نارا وقودها الناس والحجارة وعنده بعض أصحابه وفيهم شيخ فقال الشيخ يا رسول الله حجارة جهنم كحجارة الدنيا فقال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم والذي نفسي بيده لصخرة من صخر جهنم أعظم من جبال الدنيا كلها That when the messenger narrated or recited this ayah Protect yourselves and your families from the fire, the fuel of which is man and stone. There was a man amongst them and he said to the messenger, O messenger, are the stones, these, the fuel of the hellfire, those stones, are they like the stones of the world? The stones that we have here. The messenger said, by the one whom my soul is in his hand, a stone or a rock from the rocks of hellfire, they are greater than the size of a mountain in this world. That one rock from those rocks, from those stones, are greater than the size of a mountain in this world. That will be one rock or stone. And it mentions in the narration, when that uh, uh, explanation was given by the Prophet ﷺ to the man, the man was asking, are the rocks like these rocks? Messenger said, one of them is like the size of a mountain. He mentions in the narration, فَوَقَعَ الشَّيْخُ مَغْشِيًّا عَلَيْهِ That the man fell unconscious from hearing that. That he fell unconscious from hearing that. Uh, and then he mentions how the messenger put his hand on his chest and the narration continues. But the point of it is that there is a severe warning regarding that fire and look at the connection that is being made. It doesn't just say protect your families from the hellfire and that's it. But a severe example is given in connection to it. Protect your families from the fire where the corpses and the bodies and the mankind themselves are the fuel. And the rocks the size of these mountains are the fuel. And those rocks that were used in the idols are from the fuel. And so this is what you are protecting yourselves and your families from. And so those are some of the means of that protection from the education and the nurturing and the cultivation and teaching them the etiquettes and manners and morals of Islam and facilitating the goodness in your homes and preventing the haram and the evil. That is something important for the man of the household to take into consideration. Do not facilitate and allow the evil to occur and then expect your family to be upon good. Rather facilitate the good and prevent the harm within your households. That is a, a general look at the ayah regarding protecting yourselves and your families from the fire. So there's maybe just 10 minutes or so now. And then uh, after that, inshallah ta'ala, Sheikh Ali al-Wasifi is going to begin. And no doubt, so it's a heavy task upon the man. 
all of this job, it's a heavy task upon the man. But as we mentioned briefly, it comes upon both parents. Sometimes it could be in some households that the wife is better than the man. And she is more practicing than the man. It is upon the wife too the responsibility of raising and nurturing the children and having a good and halal household. She is the one who looks after the household in the absence of the husband. So this is a shared responsibility, no doubt, that the wife plays her role in the good upbringing of the children in a halal way upon the sunnah. So she herself must educate herself and learn the Qur'an and sunnah so she can teach the Qur'an and sunnah to her children. So no doubt that is a shared responsibility and there is responsibility upon the wife too as there is responsibility upon the husband. Alright, we'll just stop there then. A few minutes break and then the Sheikh is going to start at 6.15 insha'Allah ta'ala. There's a question somebody has, or oh, oh, more than one person has asked. We said before some of the narrations that we quoted from the Salaf, they spoke about how the man must implement the religion in the household and he must enforce the religion to be implemented in his household and not allow the haram to occur. And then some people are asking, but what about the ayah, la ikraha fid din, that there is no compulsion in the religion? No doubt the religion to understand it, you have to understand it all together with all of the evidences. So all of the evidences, they clearly highlight the obligation to obey Allah in the commandments. La ikraha fiddin doesn't mean that an obligation comes to you and you say, but there's no compulsion in the religion. So I don't have to do this, I don't have to do that. Five times obligatory prayers, you're not going to say, but there's no compulsion in the religion, so I don't have to pray. Ramadan comes, you're not going to say, but there's no compulsion in the religion, I don't have to fast. We're talking about the man enforcing the obligations. The obligations which whether he enforces them or not, from Allah are already obligations upon him, the wife, the children. They are already obligations. If the man now enforces, says to his kids, pray, it's prayer time, get up. He can tell them to do so. But he is only enforcing something which Allah has already obligated. So in those affairs, you can never say, La ikraha fid deen. You can never say on an obligation that Allah has obligated, but there's no compulsion. That is incorrect. The no compulsion doesn't come into this affair. What is obligated by Allah is obligated upon you. And that's what we mean by the husband enforcing the obligations in his home, enforcing the rules of the religion in his home, the, the wajibat, that which is obligatory and you cannot go against. So in that case, there's no such thing as it's optional or it's, there's no compulsion. Of course, with the obligations of Allah, you must implement them. What does it say here? InshaAllah. <laughs> الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه. So we're going to start the telelink now with our Sheikh, Sheikh Ali al-Wasifi, حفظه الله تعالى from Egypt. 
And the title of the talk is around the theme that we've been speaking about, protecting yourselves and your families from the fire and the means to do that. And so this particular lecture is going to touch upon various topics of that nature, uh, particularly from benefits connected to Surah Al-Asr and the means to protecting yourselves and your families and salvation. Naam, ya Shaykh, anatfadhalu. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونعوذ بالله تعالى من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات عملنا على سيد الصياء محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أما بعد موعدنا اليوم من الشيخ الله تبارك وتعالى مع تفسير سورة العصر والتفسير هو التأويل الصحيح المعبر عن حقيقة الاصطلاح الشرعي الذي اتفق عليه الصحابة وثبت في لغة العرب ودل عليه النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لفظا ومعنى وعرف الصحابة رضي الله تعالى عنهم من النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم مراد الله تبارك وتعالى مما أنزل في كتابه ومما أمر وصرع فالصحابة رضي الله تعالى عنهم نقلوا ألفظ النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أقواله أفعاله ونقلوا تقريرات صلوات الله عليه كما أنهم نقلوا مراده ومقصده من أقواله ولا بد لكل معبر أن يبين مراده الذي أراده بأقواله ولا نترك غيره ليعبر عنه والنبي صلى الله عليه وسلم ما ترك شيئا يقربنا إلى الله تبارك وتعالى من أمور العبادة إلا وقد فسره وبينه ووضحه وتفسير القرآن الصحيح هو التفسير القرآني الذي جاء به القرآن أو التفسير السني الذي جاءت به السنة أو التفسير الذي جاء به الصحابة رضي الله تعالى عنهم وهو مع كثرة وتنوعه في الألفاظ إلا أن مجهوله مجهول واحد والتفسير الذي قيدته الشريعة من اللغة العربية لأن اللغة العربية لغة عامة مطلقة ولا بد لها من تقييد وقد جاء القرآن وجاءت السنة فقيدت عمومات اللغة العربية ولا يتم التفسير إلا بهذه الطريقة التي بيناها خلافا لمدرسة الرأي والتخمين ومدارس الفلاسفة ومدارس الصوفية الإشارية وغير ذلك من المدارس 
اللغوية التي استندت على بعض الأقوال الشاذة والمعاني الغريبة التي لا تؤصل علما ولا تدل على الحقيقة فالتفسير الصحيح هو التفسير الذي جاء به السلف الصالح رضي الله تعالى عنه وهو التفسير الذي نقله علماء الحديث وعلماء السنة رضي الله تعالى عنهم وأرضاهم أخذ أخوي نعم نعم يا شيخ إن شئت أن ترجم ترجم نعم إن شئت أن ترجم ترجم نحن ما عندنا مانع يا شيخنا يعني ما نريد نطول عليكم أنا ما عندي مشكلة وترجم الآن ولا في النهاية كما تريدون الأصح بالنسبة لك خلاص يا شيخنا وترجم الآن إن شاء الله So here then the Sheikh began uh, and he said the tafsir of Surah Al-Asr is what we are going to mention today and he spoke in this introduction about the styles of tafsir and how tafsir is derived and so he mentioned that tafsir it is ta'wil and that is giving the explanation and the expression of something in its reality and in this case it is what the companions have agreed upon and what the language will also indicate uh, because the tafsir will be connected to the Arabic language and what that indicates and of course what the Prophet said and what the companions said from their knowledge of what they learnt from the Prophet and they were therefore aware of the intention of the meanings of those ayat of the Qur'an. And they were therefore aware of what was being legislated within the Qur'an, what the intentions and meanings behind that were, from having learnt it from the Prophet ﷺ. And so the companions, they transmitted the statements of the messenger, the actions of the messenger, the tacit approvals, the acknowledgments of the messenger, and they transmitted all of that and the intentions behind the statements of the messenger and the tafsir. And they had to do that. That's what they did. They did not leave it to other than themselves. They were the ones who learnt that from the messenger and the messenger did not leave anything except that he clarified it. And so the method of tafsir can be either the Qur'an via the Qur'an itself, meaning other ayat, they clarify those ayat, or it can be the Qur'an via the sunnah, which gives you the tafsir of it, uh, or it can be the Qur'an via the statements of the sahaba, who explained and clarified that, and all of those, they go back and revolve to the same source. And also what comes into this is the Arabic language. So when you have ayat or you have sunnah, hadith, all of that is understood upon the basis of the language. They are all in the Arabic language. So that restriction will exist. And this tafsir of ours, the tafsir of Ahl-Sunnah, it is in opposition to the ways 
of the people of philosophy or the Sufiya or, or, or the individuals who rely solely upon language and then they pick out uh, uh, very strange or rare opinions and they say, but the language means this or that. And so they rely upon those oddities, those rare and strange opinions and they do not, they do not get to the reality of the tafsir in that way. So the reality of the tafsir is the one upon the methodology of the correct way that the scholars have transmitted throughout the ages. Naam, Yashir. Alhamdulillah, wa sallatu wa sallam wa rakullah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now, this is Surah. So, Surah, 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 على قول ابن عباس رضي الله تعالى عنه وقول الجمهور وقيل عن قتادة رضي الله تعالى عنه جميعا أنها سورة مدنية وهذه السورة مبنية على القسم الذي أقسم الله تبارك وتعالى به في أول السورة والقسم لغة بمعنى اليمين القسم لغة بمعنى اليمين وقول الرجل وأيم الله كلمة قسم والقسم دائما يستخدم الإنسان لتأكيد قوله أو لتعظيم مقام المقسم به وتعظيمه وأهمي وبيان أهميته وأنه يستحق النظر ونتيجة هذا القسم أن الله سبحانه وتعالى أراد أن يبين للعباد أنه أحق بأن يعبد وأحق بأن يعظم وأحق بأن يجل ويقدس ولا يجب القسم بالمخلوق بناء على ذلك لأن الحمد المطلق والتعظيم المطلق والكمال المطلق لله سبحانه وتعالى لأن الله عز وجل شاهد على كل نفس ولأن الله تعالى قادر على أن يعاقب من كذب وخالف في قسمه كما هو قادر على أن يرفع من صدق في قسمه وأن وأبر في قسمه الله سبحانه وتعالى هو الخالق فلا يجب القسم بغير الله عز وجل قول النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا حلفتم فلا تحلفوا إلا بالله أو كما قال وقول النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم من كان حالفا فلا يحلف إلا بالله وقوله صلى الله عليه وسلم ومن حلف بغير الله فقد أشرك المراد هنا التعظيم والإشهاد وبياني قدرة الله سبحانه وتعالى وبيان علم الله سبحانه وتعالى بالغيب وأن الله عز وجل لا يخفى عليه الله سبحانه وتعالى لا يخفى عليه أمر عباده الإمام الشافعي رحمه الله تعالى قال لو لم ينزل من القرآن غير هذه الصورة لكفت الناس لأنها اشتملت على جميع 
علوم القرآن فالقرآن توحيد وإيمان والقرآن قصص والتشريع وفرائد وسنن والقرآن بين العقوبات المترتبة على المخالفة كما بين الثواب المترتب على الطاعة فهذه الصورة بينت أسباب الربح وأسباب الخسارة في أمر الدنيا وفي أمر الآخرة وذلك ليكون الإنسان على بصيرة فلذلك كانت هذه الصورة كلمة أو كانت جامعة لعلوم القرآن جميعا كما بينا ولذلك فإن تفسير هذه الصورة يأخذ بالمرء إلى واردات الإيمان التي تشعل القلب نورا وبهاء وحبا وقربا من الله سبحانه وتعالى الواو هنا قلنا الواو هنا واو القسم والعصر فيه عدة أقوال لأهل العلم فابن عباس رضي الله تعالى عنه بيّن أن العصر بمعنى الدهر والدهر يعني الزمان وذلك لأن فيه عبرة أو لأن فيه عبرة للناظر من حيث تصريف الأحوال وتبديلها والدلالة على الصانع سبحانه وتعالى هذا قول ابن عباس وقال غيره من أهل العين فيه من الأعجيب والسراء والضراء والصحة والمرض فهذا هو الشيء المعتبر في الدهر وبقية عمر الإنسان لا قيمة له إذا خلى من المنعة ولذلك كان العصر كان العصر من أشرف الأشياء في حياة الإنسان الزمان والمكان لماذا؟ لأنه يترتب عليه سعادة الإنسان كما ترتب عليه شقاؤه فهو من جملة أصول النعم التي أنعم الله تبارك وتعالى بها على الإنسان وزي قال تعالى في كتابه أولم نعمركم ما يتذكر فيه من تذكر وجاءكم النذير والمراد أن الزمان نعمة ومهلة من الله سبحانه وتعالى ولذلك أقسم الله تبارك وتعالى بها أما الإنسان فهو الخاسر الخاسر الإنسان هو الخاسر في الحقيقة الخاسر إما من جهة معاصيه أو من جهة اختيار الأدنى على الأعلى من الأعلى أو من الأشياء أو من الطاعات اختيار الأدنى على الأعلى فهو يختار المفضول على الفاضل الأعظم وترك الأعلى استبقاء للأدنى 
وتعظيما للأدنى لا شك أنه خسران ولذلك ما من رجل يموت إلا ويتمنى أن يعود إلى الدنيا إذا كان مسيئا ليترك إساءته وإذا كان مقصرا ليستدرك ما وقع فيه من تقصير بطاعة الله سبحانه وتعالى فيزداد إحسانا وقربا من الله سبحانه وتعالى ولذلك الإنسان في خص لازم إما من جهة معاصيه وإما من جهة تقصيره في طاعته فالتقصير في الطاعة نتيجة لانشغاله باللاوى أو نتيجة لانشغاله بالمعصية لأن الإنسان إذا عصى الله سبحانه وتعالى فإنه يضيع في مقابل تلك المعصية طاعة كان ينبغي أن يستغل الزمان الذي استغله في المعصية في طاعة الله وفي تسبيح الله وفي تحميد الله وفي تعظيم الله عز وجل فلم يدرك هذا الثواب الأعظم بسبب وقوعه في معصية الله سبحانه وتعالى أو انشغاله بالليل والنهار بأمر الدنيا عن أمر الآخرة العصر قيل أيضا في العصر هو ما بعد زوال الشمس إلى الغروب الإنسان في أول النهار ضعيف وفي آخر النهار إذا تداركه بالتوبة والعمل الصالح فإنه رابح ولذلك القسم هنا متعلق بأول النهار إذا ضعف وخسر والربح هنا متعلق ببقية العمر إذا أدرك فيه التوبة وذكر الله تعالى والضحى والليل إذا سجى ما ودعك ربك وما قلى ولا الآخرة خير لك من الأولى ولذلك كانت أمة محمد آخر الأمم وقد جاءت في آخر النهار وذلك لأن آخر النهار زمن قليل وعمل مكرون بتوبة وصلاح وخاتمة طيبة يربح فيها الإنسان ربحا عظيما وذلك قال ولا الآخرة خير لك من الأولى والمراد أن الأعمال بالخواتيم أن الأعمال بالخواتيم قيل في العصر أن الله عز وجل أقسم بالعصر أي بالصلاة الوسطى الصلاة الوسطى لأنها خاتمة الطاعات في النهار خاتمة الطاعات يختم الإنسان بها الطاعة الصلاة الوسطى فيها أقوال كثيرة كما قال الله تبارك وتعالى وقد أمر الله بالمحفظة عليها قال حافظوا على الصلوات والصلاة الوسطى وقوموا لله قانتين ويبين أن صلاة العصر هي الصلاة الوسطى قول صحيح ثابت 
عن علي قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم شغلونا عن الصلاة الوسطى صلاة العصر جعل الله قبورهم نارا هذا نص وارد في أن الصلاة الوسطى هي صلاة العصر وليست صلاة الفجر وهذا قول ابن مسعود وقول أبي هريرة وقول أبي حنيفة وقول أكثر الشافعية وقيل أنه قول جمهور الصحابة والتابعين وقد بين الإمام الحافظ الدمياطي رحمه الله تعالى فضل صورة فضل صلاة العصر في عدة معاني منها غلظ المصيبة في تركها لقول النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم من فاتته صلاة العصر فكأنما وتر أهله وماله يعني فكأنما فقد أهله وماله يعني هي الغنى كله وهي أن الأنفس والأهل والأقارب والأصحاب والأصدقاء ومنها حبوط عمل تاركها من ترك صلاة العصر عاملا فقد حبط عمله ولذلك كانت صلاة العصر أحب الصلاة إلى الصحابة رضي الله تعالى عنهم ومن فضائل سورة العصر أو صلاة العصر صلاة العصر أنها أول صلاة إلى الكعبة قد جرى أنس ليبين للناس أن الكعبة قد حولت أو أن القبلة قد حولت إلى الكعبة في صلاة العصر وكان الناس يصلون إلى المسجد الأقصى فالتفتوا واستقبلوا الكعبة وهم في الصلاة وذلك في صلاة العصر ومنها أيضا عظم الأيمان بعد صلاة العصر عظم الأيمان بعد صلاة العصر ومنها أن سليمان لما فاتته صلاة العصر قيل أنه أتلف مالا كثيرا إذ عرض عليه كما قال الله بالعشي الصافنات الجياد فقال إني أحببت حب الخير عن ذكر ربي حتى توارت بالحجاب أي حتى توارت الشمس بالحجاب فاتفق عليها مسحا بالسوق والأعناق فقيل أنه يعني تصدق بها ورجح أكثر علماء ذلك ولم يقولوا أنه قتلها أو ذبحها لأنها لم ترتكب جرما وقال أيضا الحافظ دمياطي رحمة الله عليه أن الله تعالى أقسم بها فهي أول الصلاة وجوبا بعد الفجر ويعني أول الصلاة وجوبا الفجر وآخرها العشاء فكانت الصلاة الوسطى هي صلاة العصر هي خاتمة النهار هي خاتمة النهار 
أما بداية الليل فالليل يبدأ من بعد غروب الشمس ولذلك ولذلك نحن إذا رأينا هلال رمضان صلينا صلاة التراويح وتكون هذه أول صلاة للتراويح في رمضان فدل ذلك على أن رمضان يبدأ من الليل فدل ذلك على أن أول يوم في رمضان يبدأ من الليل هذا هو ما قيل في صلاة أو في وقت صلاة العصر وما قيل في العصر أنه الدار أنه ما بعد الزوال إلى غروب الشمس أنه الصلاة الوسطى وقيل قولا عظيما جميلا في معنى العصر وهو عصر النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وقد أقسم الله تبارك وتعالى به كما أنه أقسم بالبلد قال لا أقسم بهذا البلد يعني مكة وأنت حل بهذا البلد يعني وأنت قائم في هذا البلد فأقسم بمكة وهي الظرف وأقسم بالزمان الذي فيه النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم وهذا تعظيما للمظروف فيه والحال فيه وهو النبي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم فأقسم الله عز وجل بزمن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم خاصة أقسم بالزمان عامة وبزمن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم لأن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم جاء في أشرف الأزمان لأشرف الأمم وهي أمة النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم التي قال الله تبارك وتعالى فيها كنتم خير أمة أخرجت للناس تأمرون بالمعروف وتنهون عن المنكر وتؤمنون بالله تفضل يا فضل الشيخ So then, the Shaykh, he mentioned that this particular chapter, it is stated by Ibn Abbas and the majority of the scholars that Surah Al-Asr was revealed in Mecca, but that there is a statement of some of them, like Qatada, who mentioned that it was revealed in Medina. And this particular chapter, it is based upon the start of it, it is all based upon an oath that is taken when it mentions wal-asr by time. So the whole chapter is then based upon that oath from the beginning. And that's what the qasm is. It is al-yameen, an oath, a vow that is taken or an oath that is taken. So the whole chapter is based upon that. And an oath is taken in order to emphasize something, to emphasize a particular matter, or to highlight the greatness and importance of a particular matter. And that, uh, in this case, it will be in regards to the rest of the chapter, highlighting that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He is the one who has the right to be worshipped and the right to be 
uh, the one that you direct all of your ibadah and worship to, and the one that you magnify and recognize as your Lord the Great. And that absolute perfection is for Allah. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is aware of all things and has knowledge of all affairs. And in regards to people taking oaths, if a person took an oath and he lied, even if that person took an oath in the name of Allah but he lied, then it would be known to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if a person makes that oath correctly, uh, and then he fulfills it, then those ones are raised upon their goodness. And that's why there are narrations about taking oaths, that if you take an oath, the narration that says, if you take an oath, then do not make the oath except in the name of Allah. Uh, and also, man kana halifan fala yahlif illa billah, that whomsoever is going to take an oath, then do not take it except in the name of Allah. And also, من حرف بغير الله فقد أشرك Whomsoever makes an oath in other than the name of Allah, then he has committed shirk. He has associated partners alongside Allah. So the affair of taking an oath, it is for clarifying the greatness of something. And in this case, it is to clarify the greatness and the magnificence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what is to be mentioned in the remainder of the surah. And it clarifies that nothing is hidden from Allah regarding His servants. And such is the virtue of this chapter, Surah Al-Asr, that Imam Shafi'i he mentioned that if Allah had not revealed to the people other than this, chapter, then it would have sufficed them because this particular chapter incorporates all of the various aspects of the Qur'an in it because the aspects of the Qur'an are Tawheed and the the Qasas, the stories of the prophets and messengers, the Fara'id, the various rulings that are mentioned, the laws of inheritance and the other parts of the laws and it mentions about the punishments of those who disobey and are deserving of it, and it mentions the reward of those who are dutiful, and that uh, recompense from Allah for them of goodness. So this chapter incorporates all of those different meanings within it, and it clarifies the reasons, the causes for success, and at the same time clarifies the causes and the reasons for loss. So that so this surah is therefore comprehensive, incorporates all of the various aspects and topics and themes of the Qur'an within it. And that's why this particular surah, a person who reads it, ponders over it, then they will recognize or it will impact upon their hearts. It will impact upon their hearts. It will, it will light up something within their hearts, a light within their hearts. And it will bring them closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So at the beginning here when it says, Wal Asr, the wow 
That is for the oath. An oath is being taken. And there are different opinions as to what al-asr actually means. One of the opinions mentioned by Ibn Abbas is that al-asr means ad-dahr, meaning a zaman Time, as we say, by time. And that is because time has within it an admonition for the person who ponders. Time, the limited time a person has. There is admonition when you look at the different things that occur within this time, the different events that take place, the different circumstances that occur, all of these things that occur within this time that is passing us by from the affairs of goodness or the affairs of difficulty and distress, from the affairs of good health or the affairs of illness, all of these matters occur within time. And so that is one statement that al-asr is this time. So time is from the most noble of affairs in the life of a believer or in the life of a person. This time is from the greatest of the affairs for a person. And also the location, the time and the location. Those affairs, they are what will bring you happiness or misery. Where you spend your time, where you spend it, at what location, how you do with your time, that will determine then whether you are going to be given happiness and success or you are going to end up in misery, depending on how you use that time. So a person needs to recognize that this time is from the blessings of Allah upon us and that Allah has given us this respite, that we've been given this opportunity in this time to utilize it appropriately. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took this oath by this time. And then it mentions in the surah regarding how mankind is in loss and no doubt everybody is in some degree of loss. It could be that a person is in loss in regards to his sins. That he, from the sins that he is committing and uh, the choices that he's making in life, choosing the lower affairs, the lesser important affairs over the more important affairs, then that could be a means of loss for him. That instead of the greater affair and the worship and the obedience, he's choosing something lesser and lower. So this could be a means of loss. Or that he's engaging in sinning. And if you engage in sinning, it means that is taking time away from you that you could have been engaging in uh, obedience and worship to Allah. So when a person is preoccupied in his sinning, Uh, preoccupied in that wrongdoing, then he is wasting his time that he could have been using in obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why it will be the case that afterwards, everybody, the people, they will wish that they could come back. People will wish that they can come back uh, to this life again and catch up on what they missed out on 
and uh, make up for the, the, the wasted time and the loss that they were in and they were preoccupied with the worldly affairs. Everybody or those people of that nature will wish they can come back to get another opportunity. And they are the ones who are preoccupied with the worldly affairs over the affairs of the afterlife. Also from the statements mentioned about Al-Asr is that it is the time after the Zawal up to the sunset. The Zawal being the zenith, the middle of the day when the sun is at the peak. After that, when the sun moves from the middle going down now, the afternoon as we say, from that moment onwards, from the zenith onwards, up until the sunset, that is an opinion that it is known as the Asr time, all of that time. And so at the beginning of the day, a person is in loss, but then as the day goes by, if a person utilizes the day, in goodness and worship and obedience, then by the end of the day he could be profiting. He may begin negative, but then uses the day in obedience and worship, and at the end of the day he is in profit. So that profit, it will come with the time a person has in his life that he utilizes that time in repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why it's mentioned in the narrations about this ummah being at the example of the end of the day. The end of the day where the time period is small, but the actions that are done at that end of the day, if they are attached with seeking repentance and seeking forgiveness, then those final actions of the day from the zenith up until sunset, the last part of the day, that ending, the khatima, what your deeds are sealed with, that could bring you the profit in the end, because the actions are going to be judged upon their endings. So if that day you end it with the goodness and righteousness, and tawbah and istighfar, then that could be a profit for a person. Another opinion about al-asr, is that it is the actual prayer, as-salatul wusta. And again, as-salatul wusta has multiple opinions as to what it is, but the uh, opinion of many of them is that salatul wusta, that prayer is salatul asr, that it is the asr prayer, and that is the opinion from the evidence mentioned from Ali radiallahu anhu, where he mentioned that that there were the, the messenger said there were people who preoccupied us, they preoccupied us from as-salatul wusta, and then he mentions in the narration that it is the asr prayer, salatul asr. So the narration explicitly mentions that as-salatul wusta is indeed salatul asr. And then he mentioned, may Allah make their graves fire. So this opinion is the opinion of Ibn Mas'ud and many of the others. Uh, many of the Shafi'iyah take the opinion, Abu Hanifa takes the opinion, and it is stated by many of the companions that as-salatul wusta is indeed salatul asr. And there's a narration or some narrations about the virtue and greatness of that prayer of Salat al-Asr. 
Uh, and one of the narrations mentions that whomsoever misses the Asr prayer, then it is as though you've lost your family and wealth. Your family and wealth have gone from you. The one who misses the Asr prayer. Uh, and also, whomsoever misses the Asr prayer intentionally, then his actions are destroyed. So there are severe narrations regarding the Asr prayer. And also, from the virtues of it, it's mentioned that when the direction of the Qibla was changed towards the Kaaba, that when the Tahwil occurred, it was during the time of the Asr prayer. They were praying in the old direction, Salatul Asr. And then when the ayat were revealed about the change of direction in the Asr prayer, then they changed and started facing the new direction, the Kaaba. So that is mentioned as being Salatul Asr when it happened. And also uh, from the... So, so if that is the meaning of it, it would mean therefore that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about or taking the oath by the Asr prayer. These are all differences on what the Asr means at the beginning of Surah Al-Asr. So that could be one opinion and that is one statement that the oath is being taken by the actual Asr prayer. And that is the final prayer of the day. As it was mentioned before, your actions, your deeds are sealed with their endings. And the Asr prayer is the final prayer of the day. Because Maghrib then goes into the night. So Asr is the final prayer of the daytime prayers. Then Asr, uh, Maghrib then goes into the night. So that is another type of virtue. It's the final prayer of the daytime. That is the seal of your actions of the daytime. As for after the sunset, then that begins with the, uh, uh, the nighttime then begins. Uh, and there are examples of this when you see the new moon for Ramadan. That night, you start praying the taraweeh prayer. So that indicates Ramadan begins from the first night of Ramadan before the first day of Ramadan. The night starts first, then the first day. The first night, the taraweeh straight away. You haven't been fasting that day. Taraweeh begins and then the first day comes after that. Uh, so the point being there that the Asr is the final prayer of the day. And there is another very beautiful statement that has been made regarding the Asr. That the Asr here is talking about the time span of the Prophet wasallam, His time span, his lifetime. Because then that would mean it is in reference to the lifespan and the time of the messenger. And there are other examples of when Allah has made reference to the location of the messenger. When it mentions in other chapters, that's talking about Mecca. So that is the location the messenger was in. And some of them said the Asr here could be in reference to the time of the messenger. Therefore, it is virtuous talking about the time and the location of the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So, asr is generally time, but specifically upon this opinion, it could be the time of the messenger, and that is the most noble of times, and that was the most noble of people at that time, the best of the ummah. Kuntum khayra ummatin ukhrijat lin nas, as it is mentioned in the Quran. 
that you were the best of the nations taken out from the people. So those are various opinions on what Al-Asr means at the beginning of Surah Al-Asr. Naam ya Sheikh.
وقال تعالى لعباده الصالحين وقال لنبيه لا يغرنك تقلب الذين كفروا في البلاد متاع قليل ثم مأواهم جهنم وبئس البهاد قيل أن الله عز وجل أراد بالإنسان هنا الكافر لاستثناء المؤمن لأنه قال إن الإنسان إلا الذين آمنوا فأراد بالإنسان الكافر أنه في خسران لأنه إذا عمر في الدنيا وطال عمره هرم في نهاية الأمر ورد أو رد إلى أرض للعمر وضعف وأصابه الوزال وانصرف الناس عنه ونقص أمره إلا المؤمن فإن المؤمن كلما يزداد عمره يزداد بركة المؤمن يزداد بركة لماذا؟ لأن عمله الذي عجز عنه في شيخوخته وفي هرمه عمله الذي عجز عنه وضعف عن أدائه عندما مرض فإنه ينال ثوابها بسبب أنه كان يقوم بها في شبابه وهذا تكريما من الله عز وجل له فإن المؤمن كان يصلي وهو صحيح البدن فلما كبر صلى وهو ضعيف البدن فجلس فينال أجر صلاته قائما كما لو كان يفعلها في شبابه ولذلك فالإنسان المؤمن لا يخسر بطول عمره قال تعالى لقد خلقنا الإنسان في أحسن تقويم ثم رددناه أسفل سافلين إلا الذين آمنوا قوله إن الإنسان لفي خسر ذكرت خسر هنا منكرة يعني لم تذكر معرفة بالألف واللام لم يقل في الخسر وإنما قال في خسر والتنكير هنا لإفادة التعظيم تعظيم هذا الخسران لماذا؟ لأنه لا يعلم عاقبته إلا الله سبحانه وتعالى ولا يعلم كنهه على الحقيقة إلا الله عز وجل إلا الله سبحانه وتعالى فالخسران خسران عظيم لأن الله عالم به وعالم بكنهه وحقيقته أما الإنسان فهو عالم بمعناه وألفاظه الله عالم بصورته وعندما يعلم الإنسان بحقيقته عند ذلك يتبين له الفارق بين العلم النظري الذي كان يعرفه في الدنيا والعلم التصوري الحسي الذي يتحسسه وهو في الجنة أو والعياذ بالله إذا دخل النار كلا سوف تعلمون ثم كلا سوف تعلمون كلا قال كلا لو تعلمون علم اليقين لترون الجحيم يعني عندما ترون صورة الشيء الذي كان 
معلوما علما نظريا عندكم ستتبين لكم الحقائق واضحة أهل الإيمان أهل الإيمان تتبين لهم الحقائق واضحة بالقرآن والسنة يعني لو دخل الجنة فإن يقينهم لا يزيد عما كانوا عليه في الدنيا لأن يقينهم بالله وبعلم الله وبوعد الله أثبت من الجبال الرواسي وما هو إلا زيادة على زيادة وما هو إلا زيادة على زيادة قال تعالى والعصر إن الإنسان في خسر الخسر لغة بمعنى الغبن والهلكة والعقوبة قال تعالى وكان عاقبة أمرها خسرا الخسران أو الخسر يعني الغبن الغبن المراد بالغبن هنا أنهم باعوا آخرتهم واشتروا دنياهم فجاءوا في يوم القيامة مقصين مخدوعين لظنهم أنهم كانوا سينالون الدنيا والآخرة كما قال الرجل صاحب الجنة ولئن رددت إلى ربي لأجدن خيرا منها مقلبا لأجدن خيرا منها مقلبا ولكنه وجد غير ذلك أو سيجد غير ذلك كل من اشترى الدنيا بالآخرة يعني أخذ الدنيا وترك الآخرة والخسران هنا أن أهل الجنة أخذوا الجنة الجنة التي كانت معدة للكافرين وأهل النار أخذوا النار التي كانت معدة أو منزلا للمؤمنين فصاروا في غبن ونقص وحصرة ذلك لأن الأنباء والأحوال والمقادير في الآخرة بخلاف المقادير في الدنيا والأمور متغيرة والأمور متغيرة فالإنسان عندما يجد شيئا غير الذي كان يظنه فإنه يرى خداعا وخسرانا وأشد أنواع الخسران في أوله أنه أن الدنيا تكون مظلمة ولا يكون هناك أنوار بعد إشراق الله عز وجل الأرض بنوره سبحانه وتعالى بعد الحساب يسير المؤمن في نوره يسعى نورهم بين أيديهم وبأيمانهم فيجري المنافقون خلف المؤمنين يلتمسون منهم نورا فيقول لهم المؤمنون ارجعوا وراءكم فالتمسوا نورا وهذا من السخريه بهم حيث كانوا يسخرون منهم في الدنيا يسخرون منهم فاليوم الذين امنوا من الكفار يضحكوا يضحكوا كانوا يسخرون من المؤمنين في الدنيا 
فاليوم يسخر المؤمنون منهم في الآخرة قوله لفي خص هذا هو المناسب لما فعلوا فلما زاغوا أزاغ الله قلوبهم قال تعالى وما تجزون إلا ما كنتم تعملون الناجي هنا هم الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات قال إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات عملوا أي الفعل المؤثر في بلوغ النفع الذي لا فساد فيه والاستقامة التي لا روغان فيها فالمسلم يستقيم ولا يروغ ولا يحتال ولا يروغ ولا يحتال ولا يروغ كما تروغ الثعالب المؤمن صريح في قلبه صريح في نفسه صريح في إخلاصه صريح في عقائده صريح في في التزامه الشرعي صريح في كل شيء أمر به الله وأحبه الله ورضيه الله سبحانه وتعالى الصالحات الأمور النافعة وهي الأمور التي يحبها الله تبارك وتعالى ويرضاه إلا الذين آمنوا عملوا الصالحات الواو هنا لقوله عملوا الصالحات ليست مغايرة للإيمان لأن العمل الصالح من الإيمان وإنما ذكرت الواو هنا أو عطف العمل الصالح على الإيمان لأجل الاهتمام به لأجل الاهتمام به وتعظيمه وأن الله أمر به أي بالعمل وجعله دينا فانتسلوا الأوامر والطاعات واتركوا المحرمات والمنكرات فلا يمشوا إلا من جاء بهذه الأربعة وهي جامعة لكمال الدين وكمال الدين هو الإيمان والإيمان يشمل الإحسان والإسلام والإيمان الذي أمر الله به والدين يشمل الإيمان والإحسان والإسلام قول النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم في حديث جبريل هذا جبريل جاءكم يعلمكم دينكم فالدين هو الالتزام بالشرائع الظاهرة وهو الإيمان الصريح بالقلب المتعلق بالإقرار بالغيب الذي قد يدخله الغيب وهو متعلق أي الإيمان بالتصديق بأخبار النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم الإيمان عملوا الصالحات تواصوا بالحق تواصوا بالصبر هذه الأربعة هي كمال الدين كله قوله تعالى وتواصوا يعني جاءت بصيغة الماضي يعني أوصى بعضهم بعضا في الماضي ليدرك في المستقبل عملا صالحا يقربه إلى الله سبحانه وتعالى قبل أن يفتن وأن يغرق في الأهواء والفتن أوصى بعضهم بعضا فالصالحون يوصي بعضهم بعضا حتى لا يقعوا في الفتن أما أهل الأهواء والبدع فإنهم يقعون في الفتن ولا يعرفون النصيحة إلا بعدما أن يبلدوا بالفتن والعياذ بالله وذلك يقول الشاعر أوصيتهم أو نصحتهم أمري 
بمنعرش اللواء موضع في الاردن فلم يستبينوا النصح الا في دحى الغد يعني نصحتهم فلم يستبينوا النصح الا في دحى الغد يعني بعد قلت لهم لا تخرجوا للقتال ولكنهم لم يسمعوا كلامي فخرجوا فرجعوا مهزومين مقتولين فلم يسمعوا النصيحه الا بعد ان قتلوا وماتوا اما المؤمن فهو يدرك بالعلماء الصالحين عاقبه امره قبل ان يقع في المصيبه فيمسك نفسه فالوصيه هنا فعل متعدد يعني يوصي بعضهم بعضا تواصوا بالحق اي بالايمان الثابت الحق الثابت الذي لا يسوغ انكاره لا يسوغ انكاره الحق الشيء الثابت الذي لا يسوغ انكاره يعني الدليل الدال على المدلول الشاهد الدال على المشهود وتواصلوا بالصبر الاول الحق الذي هو الايمان والثاني الصبر الذي هو الرضا وحبس النفس عن فعل ما يسوء ولذلك قرر هنا كرر هنا فعل التواصي قال وتواصوا بالحق ثم قال وتواصوا بالصبر وذلك لاختلاف المفعولين فالحق المراد به هنا الاول الايمان و التواصي الثاني المراد به هنا الصبر فالاول رتبه عباده بالحق لما يحب الله تبارك وتعالى من الشرائع ويرضاه والثاني الصبر عبوديه متعلقه بامرين الاول حبس النفس عن الشكوى والصبر على البلاء والمحن والطاعه والمعصيه والثاني الرضا بقدر الله وعدم السخط على احكام الله واقدار الله المؤلمه اذا قوله تبارك وتعالى والعصر ان الانسان لفي خسر الا الذين امنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر هي والله جامعه لكمال الدين كما قال الإمام الشافعي رحمه الله لو لم ينزل من القرآن إلا هذه الصورة لكانت كافية والقرآن كله كاف قال تعالى ولم يكفهم أن أنزلنا عليك الكتاب يتلى عليهم فالله عز وجل جعل الكتاب كاف بدلالاته النقلية الصريحة الصحيحة ودلالاته العقليه فالقران جامع للادله النقليه والادله العقليه وليس هناك ادله نظر ولا استدلال ولا سمع اعظم مما جاء به القران وجاءت به السنه وصلى الله على محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته وعليكم السلام ورحمة الله وبركاته جزاكم الله خيرا يا شيخنا وبارك الله فيكم الله يبارك فيك
So then the Shaykh continued and he mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala therefore took the oath by time and his intent was to highlight and to clarify thereafter the issue of mankind being in loss. And the meaning of mankind here, وَالْعَصَرْ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ the al-insan, it means all of mankind, whether believers or unbelievers. That all of mankind is in that loss, either because they engage in sinning, which then takes them away from time that they could be using in obedience, or that they engage and they use their lives in taking the lesser of the options rather than the better and more priority of the affairs. And so they end up in loss by taking the lower things instead of the higher affairs in worship and ibadah, etc. And so the one who wishes to exit himself from this loss that Allah is telling us all of mankind is in, is the one who focuses on the afterlife. Focuses on seeking the afterlife. Then that is the type of person who will be able to exit from the loss of this world. And the difficulty is that the, the causes and the reasons and the methods to get out of this loss, they are somewhat concealed. Meaning that you do not see the results in this world. When you strive for the afterlife, you do not see the results of what you are doing now. The results will only become apparent to you in the afterlife. Whether your striving was legitimate and sincere, and whether you are going to be successful, that will be known to you in the afterlife. So you work in this world for results that you are going to see, not now, but in the afterlife. And that's what makes people lazy with the affair. And that's what makes people uh, lax because the results are not there immediately to be seen. You do all of the worship, all of the ibadah, but you don't know the result. That's going to come in the afterlife. So as a consequence of not seeing the results immediately, then the people, they become lazy and slack with this. Whereas the one who is striving for the worldly matters, then you see the results of that now. You're striving for some worldly matter. You're working hard to buy something, then you go and buy it. You see the results for the worldly matters now. And so the people, they strive for those things because they see them as apparent and available immediately. 
the results of their striving for the dunya they can achieve now and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bestows upon the people what he bestows upon them from the rizq, the wealth and the other affairs and so as a consequence of the immediate results from the worldly matters people strive and run after those things they run after the wealth and the other worldly matters because they are clear and apparent and there to be achieved now. Whereas the results of your worship and those matters, the results are not clear and apparent now. They are for the afterlife for you to see. So that's why the people end up, so many of them, giving priority to the dunya and judging people upon the dunya. So a person who has achieved the results has ended up with a lot of wealth or has ended up with status in this world, then the people are put to trial over those things. Such and such has gained all that wealth. Let us strive the way he did to gain that wealth. Such and such has got status. Let us strive to get that status like him. They see the wealth and the status and the dunya we affairs, the worldly matters, and they are put to trial over them, and they want to go and achieve those and grab those things for themselves. And that's why the religion tells us not to have this kind of eyesight, not to be looking at those who've been blessed with this affair or that affair, not to be gazing at those who've been given that rizq, and not to be put to trial or deceived by what people are given and blessed with in this world. Not to be put to trial with that or deceived by that. Deceived by that, as in the ayah it mentions about the kuffar. Many of the kuffar, millionaires, billionaires, whatever they say, do not be deceived by that, thinking the kuffar, look at what they have and how much they gained. We need to strive for that and gain that. And then when Allah mentioned al-insan, it was stated there that this is a generic term for mankind, uh, for the kuffar, for the believers. But there are some statements that highlight that perhaps this is in reference to the kuffar more so, because the kuffar, they in this life are in loss to a greater level in the sense that the longer their life goes on upon kufr, then the worse that is building up for them, kufr and kufr and kufr, all of their life upon disbelief, 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 it's only getting worse for them. The khusran, the loss is only getting greater for them. And it is mentioned how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala returns the people back to a degrading or lower state as a person ages and gets old and perhaps Allah then returns that person back to a, a degraded state when he cannot look after himself, he cannot uh, 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 look after his affairs. So the kuffar, the older they get upon kufr, then the worst it's building up for them upon kufr. Whereas the believer, the older a believer gets, then the better for him if he is using his life 
upon obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If a person has used his life from his younger days up until his older days upon the worship of Allah, then that is goodness for him to the extent that even in his older days, if he, for example, can no longer stand and pray, from old age and weakness, he needs to sit and pray. But if he had spent his life upon ibadah in prayer standing through his youth, then when the elderly age comes and is no longer able to stand, then he will still be rewarded as he used to be rewarded. Because he spent his life upon obedience in that way, and then that elderly age and weakness came, he was no longer able, but all of his life he'd spent in that way. So then for those individuals, those believers like that, they are given their reward still. Whereas the disbelievers, they are taken down uh, into regress, going backwards into an affair that is degrading for them, and their life wasted upon kufr. So then what is the loss in specific? This loss you notice in the ayah, it is mentioned in the indefinite form. That basically in the basic sense, when you learn about alif and lam for ta'rif, the, the ma'rifah, the nakira, this is mentioned in the indefinite form in the ayah. It doesn't say al-khusr. It just says the khusr. And as a consequence of it being in the indefinite form, that indicates the greatness of this loss. The loss that Allah is talking about people being in, that is a tremendous loss. And the reality of that loss is not known except to Allah. Because the reality of that loss, you will not know it until the afterlife. And if you see that you are from the people of hellfire, then you will see the reality of your loss. When you see the hellfire and that this is where your loss is, this is where your life has ended too, that's when you will see the reality of your loss. And now Allah knows only the reality and the extent of your loss. So a person may now understand generally what loss is. And we understand we must avoid that. But the reality of that loss and the extent of it, that is what you'll see on Yawmul Qiyamah if a person ends up in that state. And the opposite to the reality of the blessing, you will only come to realize when you enter paradise, that's when you'll recognize the reality of the blessings of Allah. So the believer, he believes, ah, so this is now talking about the section regarding the methods to avoid the loss. amanu. The believers, they believe in what has come in the Qur'an. They believe regarding the affairs of the afterlife. So for them, what they experience in the afterlife is only building upon the iman that they already had about those affairs of the afterlife. They already believed in all of that which is to occur. So when it occurs and they see it for real, 
it is only an extension on top of their belief that they already had. But as for those who are in loss, and loss is destruction. The meaning of loss linguistically is to be in destruction. And so they will be in that destruction. They sold their afterlife and they purchased this dunya. They sold their afterlife and they purchased this dunya instead. So they will come on that day in loss, having sold their afterlife and having purchased this dunya instead. And it's mentioned that some of the examples of this loss on Yawmul Qiyamah, that, uh, for example, the munafiqoon, uh, 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 the disbelievers, they will not have light on that day. The believers will be given light, whereas the munafiqoon will not have light. And so they will try to come behind the believers to achieve some light behind them. And so you see how the tables have turned, as we say, that in this world, the disbelievers, they used to mock the believers. But then in the afterlife, the affair becomes such that the believers are the ones in the superiority and the disbelievers are the ones in that degradation. And they are the ones with no light and the believers are the ones with light on that day. So they are in loss and that is appropriate and suitable to the actions that they had done and they are going to be recompensed accordingly to those actions that they had done. So as for the ones, amanu, as for the ones who believed and they did the righteous actions, meaning they were firm and upright upon those righteous actions, not wavering here and there, but with certainty and uprightness upon Iman, certainty and uprightness in their aqidah, in all of their affairs. And so they were upright on Iman in the way that Allah commanded us to be and in the way that Allah is pleased with us to be upon. And as for as-salihat, that they are the ones who do the righteous actions. The righteous actions are al-umur al-nafi'a, the beneficial actions. The righteous actions, the beneficial actions, meaning all of those actions of worship that Allah loves and is pleased with. Not useless affairs of the world, but worship and ibadah that Allah loves and is pleased with. And so they have iman and righteous actions. And this is putting the two of those things together to indicate the importance of actions. It is not just iman, but iman with the righteous actions. Those who have iman and do the righteous actions. So therefore... This is comprehensive of all of the religion. You have iman and you do the righteous actions. That covers the religion. Because the religion is al-Islam wal-Iman wal-Ihsan. As it is mentioned in the hadith of Jibreel, uh, that the affairs of the religion are comprised or uh, incorporated within these levels 
of Islam and Iman and Ihsan. Islam being the outward and open actions and Iman being the inward actions. So they are incorporating all of those inwardly and outwardly. Iman inwardly and then Islam, your prayer, your fasting, your zakat, your hajj, outward physical actions, all of those incorporated within and then at the end of the chapter it mentions and then this is in the past tense that they advised one another upon the truth it's mentioned in the past tense meaning that they counseled one another and they advised one another in the past And then from that advice and counsel that they gave to one another, when the future circumstances arise, they can then act in the proper way. Because they've been counseling and advising one another upon the truth. So then in the future, they do the righteous actions. And this is the way of the righteous people that they advise each other with goodness. They advise each other with the truth. They advise each other with that which is proper to be practiced in the religion. Whereas the people of innovation and desires do not do that. They allow each other to go on doing whatever they are doing. And then they only realize how bad it's got once the fitna, once the calamity and the trial befalls them. So it doesn't become clear to them. The advice doesn't become clear to the people of desires until after the calamity then befalls them. Whereas the believer is prudent, is sharp, takes the advice of the scholars, takes the advice of the scholars. And so he recognizes where the goodness is and so avoids the badness and falling into the calamities. So here then, they advise each other with the truth, the firm and established truth of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And they advise each other with patience, as-sabr. And patience is to restrict yourself, to keep yourself in check in regards to the obedience to Allah and staying away from the disobedience from Allah in regards to that which is pleasing to Allah. You restrict yourself to those affairs. That is the sabr. Restricting yourselves into those affairs of worship and obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you restrict yourself, keep yourself away from falling into things that would lead to your misery disobedience, etc. And you restrict yourself to within that which pleases Allah. And you do not uh, lose your patience at the decree of Allah or the difficulties and hardships that you may encounter. You do not lose your patience, but you are patient and restrict yourselves within those affairs and the decree and the difficulties that may arise. So this chapter, the Sheikh said at the end, it is a comprehensive chapter 
which incorporates all of the religion as an Imam Ashafi'i said, had Allah not revealed upon the creation except this chapter, it would suffice them, meaning that it incorporates all of the aspects of the religion. So all of the Qur'an, it is sufficient. The, the Qur'an is sufficient and the Sunnah is sufficient for a person with all of the clear evidences that are in there and the, the rational evidences that are in there. So that combines and incorporates all of the textual evidences and the rational evidences and there is nothing greater or more uh, stronger in evidence than what you find in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah. And that is an example here of Surah Al-Asr, of the level of strength and evidence within it upon these various affairs. So that is the strength of evidence you find that cannot be beaten with that which is in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah. And that is where the Shaykh concluded that uh, brief analysis of Surah Al-Asr and some of the details and benefits of Surah Al-Asr in there. And some of you will have noticed the style of what was done there. It was a bit more detailed and this is how you would find the uh, analysis done on these types of chapters for the students of knowledge. You would go into details of this type of nature. This is more than what you would find in Tafsir al-Sa'di, for example. This is more like what you would find in Ibn Kathir al-Tabari. So that is what the Shaykh mentioned there. And that is what we'll conclude upon today then. وَجَزَاكُمُ اللَّهُ خَيْرٌ وَصَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَى نَبِيِّنَا مُحَمَّدُ عَلَى آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ وَسَلَّمُ